Welcome to the Sado Social. I'm David. And I'm Richard. And we're welcoming Ilya from Near Protocol today. Hi, everybody. It's really <laughs> great being here. Thanks. Yes, guys. you guys are a sharding blockchain exactly. with a focus on smart contracts. Yeah, so we actually have like two focuses. One is scaling through sharding. And the other one is actually usability. So we believe like as a smart contract platform, you actually need to be really usable, both on a, as a developer, you should be able to build for this blockchain. And as a user, you should be able to use these apps, not like break your head with like MetaMask, private keys, et cetera. Ganesh mm -hmm. truffle. <laughs> <laughs> You know. Well, I mean, it's. I mean, we were shocked just in San Francisco, then finding out that Infura has gone up to ninety percent of ETH traffic. Oh yeah, I mean, they're also paying a shit ton of money for Infura. It's right. almost as if we need a new consensus mechanism that pays <laughs> for the. But enough about us. <laughs> uh, what distinguishes what you guys are doing from other sharding approaches? Sure. So sharding in general is the idea that instead of having one blockchain that handles all the requests, you have a lot of blockchains that kind of in parallel run, handle different requests. Now, one dimension is, are the ch these chains the same or different, mm -hmm. right? So us and Ethereum 2.0 are going the way where all the chains are the same, have pretty much running the same runtime, the same state transition, and uh, kind of share validators. Mm -hmm. And there's another side of this dimension, which is chains are different. So Cosmos and Polkadot, are pretty much in ZCam, huh. where hmm. each like you can say, hey, I want my own chain which runs this type of uh, consensus or this type of runtime. I spin it up, I find my validators, and just hook in into kind of a hub or yeah. uh, beacon hmm. chain, and pretty much become part of this uh, bigger bigger network. Now, problem I believe with Cosmos and Polkadot approach is that the usability part is getting hindered. Because now as a developer, instead of just, you know, writing some code, launching an app, getting it to the user, I need to think about writing on my own blockchain. I need to get my own validators. Yeah. I need to figure out cryptoeconomic incentives. Are you, are you a proof of work sidechain? Are you a proof of stake sidechain? Yeah, like are what is the tokens? Get, yeah, yeah. How, do, like, how do you get distributed? So all, all those things that like, if I'm just at a hackathon, imagine, and I'm <laughs> trying to launch an app right now, yeah. that's not something I want to deal with. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of one dimension. So near you guys are like Ethereum in the sense that the programming logic of the underlying blockchain that you're building enforces how the sharded chains need to operate, how they're secured. Pretty much, yeah. And like you, you share the security among them, right? So instead mm -hmm. of having each chain have its own validators, you have like a, a shared pool and they've been rotated mm -hmm. between chains, right? Like. And you guys are also different than Cosmos and Polkadot in that the sharded chains are not intended to be abandoned. Yeah, is that true? Sure, yeah. I mean, Cosmos and Polkadot, part of their selling point is, well, if your sidechain ever really gets too big, you can kind of migrate the tokens over to a new one. You can spin them up and spin one. them down if you want to. So Pretty much, yeah. So like we have the same runtime applies, you know, accounts are shared across all the shards. And one thing we actually doing differently from Ethereum is we want to have dynamic resharding. What is dynamic resharding? So the, the idea is right now, for example, in Ethereum spec, which is a work, work in progress and changes constantly, they have a fixed number of shards. They have yeah. 1,024 shards, yeah. which is in the beginning will be a lot and makes no sense to have. And at some point, hopefully, mm. we'll get to the world where it's not enough, huh. right? So mm. there's some motivation why this number, but in general, it's kind of uh, out of nowhere, I think is like, it doesn't make much sense. What does make sense is say, hey, we'll start with one shard, and when this shard becomes too busy, we'll split it into two. 
Mm. And then when one of those becomes too busy, we can reshard and split into three, into four, etc. And we grow mm. the number of shards. Isn't it just simpler to hard fork the 1024 to 2048 when you need to, rather than undergo the overhead of working out how to program this dynamism into the into the structure? Sure. I mean, it's for sure it's more complex to implement that. Uh, like if you have fixed shards, people will try to optimize putting things on the same shard, mm -hmm. right? Because like, oh, the, the app I want to be near is on that shard, let me yeah. put everything else yeah. on that shard. So if we have dynamic resharding, we kind of like incentive, like making sure that people don't do that because we will split them up. Like we will move, move pretty much smart contracts around right. one way or another. Yeah. What are the other differences between you guys and Ethereum if we're talking on this more technical level? Yeah, yeah. So we are using very different consensus on both shard chains and on beacon chain. And the reason is because uh, we prefer safety over liveness, which means on, on a beacon chain, uh, on the shard chain specifically, if people will go offline, we'll actually stall the chain. But we will not produce any forks, hmm. which means if we don't have any forks on a, on the shard chains, we can actually have cross chain transaction, cross shard transactions way faster because we can route directly uh, to the other shard um, the result of the computation of this shard as soon as it's done and you have to search the signatures. Hmm. And the way, like, if the shard chain stalls, it will unstall pretty much as soon as we do the rotation anyway. Hmm. So there is kind of like a natural mechanism of, like, rotating out things and kind of unstalling that. So okay. it's, it's a trade-off, which is, you know, we're assuming that we'll have a, a good enough online presence, which, you know, it will not be stalling all the time. Yeah. And we're pretty much giving developers a faster performance on cross shard transactions. Okay. The you know that what Ethereum is picking is instead they have a very forkful very forkful consensus, which means you have like you can have like a chain of maybe twenty blocks and it will fork. Mm -hmm. Very unlikely, but it, that can happen. Uh, so that's why they, they need to actually cross-link to a beacon chain huh. to get a finality on any yeah. shard, which means before you can use this result on a different shard, you need to wait for this cross-link for finalization of the block, yeah. yep. which means you need to wait for Casper FFG. Hmm. So it, it may take, I mean, you know, it's yeah. all... I'm trying to remember back, because one of the striking things in San Francisco was uh, Vitalik presented, followed quickly by Vlad, and they presented... Vlad then Vitalik. Was Vlad then Vitalik, yes, yeah. you're right. And they had... Different. That's why I'm confused as to yes. that, whose vision is it's that. It's FFG so, is so, Vitalik's. So yeah. So pretty much there is Vlad's design mm -hmm. for uh, consensus and mm -hmm. for sharding. Yeah. So the so sharding design of Vlad is not used anywhere currently. Mm -hmm. It is implemented by my co-founder at two hack at a hackathon in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, together with Vlad, of course. Like, Where they won. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But the current design is all pretty much what Vitalik and Justin and Danny are working on. Mm -hmm. And yeah, a lot of it, like the pretty much their beacon chain design is pretty much supposedly finalized. Mm -hmm. But the shard design is still in flux, specifically mm -hmm. how cross-shard transactions are done and some other details on that. They are considered to implement CBC, the Vlad's Casper uh, mm -hmm. CBC. But uh, at least I, I saw a message from Vitalik saying that, you know, uh, they will postpone it for later because they need to ship now. Hmm. Yeah, okay. Uh, I mean, do you have any other questions about the sharding approach? I'd actually be curious, Ilya, what you think about Zilliqa yeah. as well. Sure. I mean, so my, my, my opinion about Zilliqa is based on 
Me reading their white paper and reading a few of their blog posts. Mm -hmm. So it may be not final. It's also maybe that they change what they're doing. Like that, I don't know. They were updating toward launch. I haven't actually... I sort of stuck my head into their office on the day before launch day and looking for someone to chat to and they were all way too busy. Yeah. Um, and I know they changed a lot just before launch, which is one of the hmm. reasons they were... Yeah, well, they're launching just a... We call it mine net. Yeah. It's, you know, you can mine it, but you can't do anything else. Yeah. Which yeah. I, I think has an interesting... I mean, I, I would, I, I'm actually excited to see how it will play out because mm. it's a very interesting model. But yeah, so their design, which is their sharding design, they call it network sharding. So network sharding is pretty much a split transaction processing into different shards, but they still, each shard has the full state of the system. Hmm. What this means is that when you want to do a cross-shard transactions, if, if it's not a monitored transaction, if it's actually like a smart contract, they stop all of the shard processing and they ship all of these transactions to shard number zero, where they process them serially. So any cross-shard computation which touches multiple accounts and different shards is executed serially on the shard number zero while everything else is stopped. Now, let's just consider smart contracts on Ethereum, mm. right? How many different addresses they usually touch, right? I mean, some of them sure only work with their current state, right? But there's a bunch of contracts that constantly touch multiple addresses, like any kind of trading or whatever will touch like at least two addresses. And that uh -huh. would be in two different shards. So like any kind of trading and stuff like this will be executing the serial part. Yeah. So you're thinking of NEAR as something that is optimized more for ICO trading and exchanges as opposed to a smart contract that's isolated. No, no. So the, we, we optimize for smart contracts, but because we're doing dynamic resharding, every single cross-contract call is a synchronous call. So we're designing every, like you cannot actually have, even if it's on the same shard, it still will be asynchronously done because we don't want you to rely that it will be on the same shard. Hmm. Which means what we want to optimize for is the, the speed of the asynchronous calls. That's why we optimize for security. That's why we don't have forks. That's why we, I mean, unless okay. malicious behavior. Yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, we can reroute really quickly to another shard, process it there, come back. So we're trying to make mm -hmm. it like, we're trying to make it that when you're writing an app, you pretty much can think of it as Node.js app that has uh, RPC or REST requests to other apps mm -hmm. on this platform. So essentially, anybody who's familiar with promises, that's how you might exactly. design it. Exactly. That, that's how we're designing that. it, is indeed. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, I mean, we should talk about UI, but maybe mm. before we do, where are you guys with tech implementation? Um, where's the project in general? And then let's talk about usability yeah. after that. Sure, mm -hmm. yeah. So we, we have a DevNet. It's a node that you can run right now, and you can develop on it. You can ship applications. You can run. So pretty much all of the runtime built up with uh, all of the tooling. And specifically, we have an IDE for writing the apps full on, not just backend, but also frontend and unit tests. Uh, it's online, studio.nearprotocol.com. Uh, we have uh, pretty much JavaScript and Python tooling. So we have SDKs that you can use. Uh, we have full state transition done pretty much with, you know, standard library for TypeScript uh, smart contracts exposed for WebAssembly. So all of this is running. There's actually hackathon happening right now where I think 15 teams are building on top of this mm -hmm. in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But 
I think it's finished by now, but it was always... Who, know, who yeah. knows what time, time it is in yeah. San Francisco? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's, it's yesterday in San Francisco. Yeah, it's yesterday. That's, it's always yesterday. The, it's always yesterday in San Francisco. But yeah, so this, this is kind of like a first piece mm-hmm. that we delivered. Uh, and then the second piece that's coming on uh, in a few weeks, we it's a full testnet where you have a multi-node uh, deployment right. and you can mm-hmm. kind of uh, join that in. And what's a, what sort of team is supporting that? How many of you are there? So we have a team of 15 people. Uh, we have 11 engineers, uh, three of whom coming from uh, MemSQL. So my mm-hmm. co-founder was uh, engineer number one uh, at MemSQL, built a huge part of the database. And then we have two more engineers from there. Three of them actually built sharded implementation of MemSQL, hmm. which is deployed at Uber, at, uh, at some point was at Goldman Sachs, at Pinterest, etc. Would you mind lending us a couple of engineers? <laughs> we have good work no, for them to do. No, seriously. <laughs> he thinks we're Do us a favor. <laughs> so well, I thought you were like in China, there's a lot of engineers. <laughs> there, are, there are a lot of engineers yeah. in China. They're often very busy. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like things are, are coming along well. Yeah. So what's your, and what's your hope for testnet? Is that something you want to run in-house or are you hoping people will join that with, with extra nodes, etc.? So I think like uh, beginning of March, our plan is to have like in-house-ish. So ideally we want to have a few nodes run by us, few nodes run by maybe somebody in China mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe a few nodes run uh, somewhere else in, in the world just to get some like uh, testing on that. Yeah. I and think then... we can trade him a full node for an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One thing we'll tell you about running nodes in China is you find out all about how sustainable uh, your connections are. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. So that, that's, why, that's why I'm super interested to run it like yeah. distributed. But then pretty much by April we should have a version where anybody mm-hmm. can join in and Mm-hmm. I mean, all of our code is open source, so it's not like people cannot join in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we'll try. We'll like start uh, promoting it way more uh, mm-hmm. at the point. Maybe you can actually run testnet right now if if you just compile. Yeah, I mean, we're, I'd, I'd be happy to install one and let you know how it runs mm-hmm. from here. Yeah. So yeah. just let us know when you're ready to go up on, on something. See yeah. what we can do. Uh, let's move on to the usability thing. Yeah. Usability thing. Okay. <laughs> that thing. That thing. I mean, the, the first thing that jumped out was because you mentioned. Um, Having a, an IDE in place, I presume you, what you've done is taken a, an IDE toolkit and implemented that into what you're doing. I've not written one from scratch. Uh, yeah, so we forked uh, what's called a WebAssembly Studio. Right. And yeah, we pretty much like patched it up and added more functionalities that we need. Okay, and so that's a, that's the way for developers to come in and, and start. Pretty much, yeah. We call it a fiddle, uh, right. but it's good for examples. It's we actually like we had internal hackathons in in, mm. in our team and most of them were built in it because it's so easy to build in mm. it mm. and like it saves you know you can share it with your with your friends you can like launch it's an app and share it JS fiddle like yeah it's a JS fiddle like but yeah you can actually build full on, full on applications right so multi file you know have like all kind of frameworks That's and stuff cool. mm. okay and um, I mean if developers came along to that I mean I know there's no sort of classic man in the street as the example used to be but you know uh, uh, what's a web developer going to have to learn someone who's familiar with WebAssembly node perhaps uh, who could put together a, a, a node um, application pretty quickly what are they going to have to learn to start working on something like Neat? So very little pretty much uh, what our smart contract platform like API looks like is very similar to node app or um you just export a function, which now you can call from your front end. Uh, and then inside the function, you just use key value storage uh, to store in, in the blockchain. And you write your TypeScript code. 
Mm-hmm. So it's very similar if how you would write some uh, API calls in Node.js. Right, so you, so you essentially just have a whatever key value stuff yeah. you want to yeah, put Yeah, it's in a key value there. store. You just put whatever. We have some, you know, uh, serialization, like APIs, et cetera, and stuff like this. But yeah. Um, so even though it's a generic smart contract system in the sense that you guys can support anything, are there any specific areas that you guys are focused on? You know, like one, one interesting thing about China, I think, there used to be a lot of people doing kind of open projects and a lot of open funding for smart contract development. A lot of that seems to have dried up with the crypto winter and as people's funds have fallen. Do you guys have a strategy for adoption or an area where you think, you know, you really want people who are doing development on this problem, near is going to be the best thing for them. What's your pitch to developers? So right now, I mean, we're actually in the middle of figuring out what's the best pitch. Like we have a few different pitches that we've been testing out. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, you know, to Ethereum folks or like uh, people who are already in blockchain is that it's way more usable. You can, you know, build smart contract in like 15 minutes and mm-hmm. launch it and share it with your friends and they can actually use it even if they don't know about blockchain. Yeah. Uh, and then the other side of it is there is way bigger world out there. Like there's 18 million developers in the world, if not more, and maybe there's 10,000 in the blockchain right now. Hmm. That's a pretty big uh, striking difference. So what we're tr- trying to do right now, and the hackathon we had was non-blockchain developers, is actually uh, messaging around that this is new open web, right? So instead of building this kind of uh, applications that may be on top of open source, but really are kind of locking in all the data yeah. and all of the functionality inside, and pretty much has a platform risk, has all kinds of possible risks. What you have now is this new world where you have applications that you can kind of reuse, you can combine, you can have this composability. So, so how do you handle that messaging with people? I mean, what are you actually saying to the developers that are coming into blockchain? We found, uh, Richard and I, when we were in San Francisco, that it's difficult enough talking to people in the crypto space mm-hmm. because people have blinders on about all sorts of things. And, you know, you're talking about a hackathon for people who are web devs or, you know, a JavaScript programmer who has no idea. Like, how are you actually dealing with this? What are you telling people? So, so one very resonating piece is actually business model for open source. So this is a way to monetize open source. And we have some, we did some changes on economical model to actually accustom for that, where as a developer, if you launch an app and you get usage for this app, like a smart contract app, you actually get some portion of the inflation of the system rewarded to you. So now your incentives are actually aligned to grow the usage of the network by bringing more users to your app. So, so you're talking about uh, token-based business models. Well, this is not token-based. You actually... I mean, you are receiving near tokens because that's what inflation is. But mm-hmm. like in reality, is you just build an app, you bring the users, uh-huh. and you receive near token as a reward. You don't need to launch a, your own token or anything. Huh. Like we're removing the need to have the utility tokens, which have no value. Hmm. Instead, yeah. you're actually getting rewarded in the system token. Is this part of the consensus mechanism for near, or is this? This is part of the economical model around uh, kind of how we're modeling the inflation, how we're rewarding different part- participants in this network. Okay, um, I mean that sounds that sounds really interesting. Obviously, for developers, that there's there's some reward. Oh, my next question is, how are you measuring that? Like, what's the how are we measuring? Yeah, the, so the, the, their contribution to this expansion is it on transaction volume or? Well, right, right now, I mean, right now we're measuring based on how much, uh, I mean, gas, like mm-hmm. how much uh, mm-hmm. 
resources uh, the the users pretty much used of this like UV as a application. Yeah. Uh, there's some interesting effects around that which may not be uh, beneficial in the long term, but it's a good start, and mm -hmm. we can kind of evolve from there. No, I mean that's this is sort of our wheelhouse. We're very interested in <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, incentivizing and how you how you consider that because I mean the first thing I look for is is ways that might be gamed. So yeah. you just have to make sure that you don't pay people more than they're spending in gas. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's right. a, it's a, it's yeah it's a proportional but not not the full thing, right? Yeah. It's a mm. sm smaller portion. So you will be losing more if you try to game it directly. Yeah. yeah. There's a you know there's a Vast well, possibility if you game it as a developer, you could do that by taking away from users, but presumably that's a worse app. Yeah, than, exactly. Than your yeah. competitors, like, which doesn't do that. If you add a for loop, for example, for a million steps just for nothing, just to get paid more, yeah, mm -hmm. presumably somebody can yeah. just fork that, remove mm -hmm. that for loop, and provide a better user experience. When when you say economic model, I'm taking it this isn't the consensus mechanism. This is just uh, a short term thing that you guys are using to boost. No, uh, I mean like so consensus. Consensus is just how nodes agree on on decision. But but also you're right? also agreeing on who gets the tokens. So, uh, sure. I mean, it's you know part of it is a protocol. What what is what is the decision is? Right? What I mean is long term. Let's say all of the tokens are in circulation. We, a we, we have hundred percent in circulation right away. Okay, so for, for proof of stake, you cannot have this like ramp up periods mm -hmm. because. Okay, so uh, like right now, the a certain portion of the transaction fees per block, so to speak, are going to go to application developers. Pretty much, yeah. How do you guys handle that? I mean, how do you is are there trade offs you guys are thinking of in terms of what percentage should be going to developers, what percentage mm -hmm. should be going to stakers? Yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a trade off there. Um, like we work enough on the economical model, which what I mean this is actually like a, a code that simulates environment where presume we're presuming everybody is somewhat rational or rational and like if you know their rational behavior everybody kind of has that issue that you have to I mean, presume a certain amount of rationality I mean, it, it, it makes sense it yeah. makes sense at scale when you have a monetary token yeah, exactly yeah. I mean, you can, you I mean, can, yeah, you can yeah. add like some black skulls type of thing on top of it if you yeah. want well, but. yeah but I mean any system that has to account for complete irrationality we're not, at any we're time not, is we're, we're not going to criticize <laughs> you on the on the bounded rationality approach yeah. we're with you here but yeah, yeah. so like assuming rationality of the parties and, and the thing is you're just aggregate across right instead of like having individual agents you just say hey you know you have one agent that has this proportion of this I mean, portion of stake like I, I'm really more asking like how is it decided and where have you guys come down on this because all, like the trade-off it sounds like the trade-off is between funding the underlying security of the system Versus, and incentivizing yeah. development on top yeah and you guys are taking the perspective and I think it makes sense mm -hmm. that you do need to have to some both, funds yeah. to, to promote development yeah. mm -hmm. it's just how exactly are you making that trade-off? Is it 50-50 or? I mean, it's probably not going to 50-50, but I mean, this is a parameter. We're still figuring out what's the yeah. best. I mean, part of it probably will be, it will be like a governance parameter as well, right? Mm. And mm. like figuring out how to properly manage it. And, is, or is change a big, it over time. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it may change over time. And that's probably like as the system matures, right? Yeah. Well, and or or like if the price of the token changes as well, right? This yeah. is all like presumably also the value of contribution of the early developers who are bringing yeah, it's initial way bigger, yeah. people onto the chain is higher than then over time, yeah, when yeah. like arbitrage, yeah. Plus, plus ten percent when it's you know when it's already billion users is probably not as beneficial mm. as yeah the first the first five hundred yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, we're also aware of that one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Cool. Um, so in terms of um, you're saying that one of the other things I caught from what you were saying is that, you know, uh, a blockchain developer as such working on Neo could develop the smart contracts that would deploy it and then they could hand that on to other developers. They're just going to see that as an API? How's that going to work for Neo? Yeah, so for other developers, yeah, it's pretty much an API. We have uh, it pretty much one thing we removed is API. If you mm. know, it's like a pretty much a way to use other contracts mm. in Ethereum ecosystem. It's like a in interface. And we removed that by making it again, more like REST API. Mm -hmm. So you just need to know functions and kind of arguments and you can just start calling those things. Uh, and yeah, I mean, if you're doing it from your smart contract and it's a promise, like you right. pretty much call it, create Zen or- Okay, so I just, I write, when I'm writing my smart contract, I also don't need to just provide the API for that smart contract. No, no, I mean, that, that is get automatically extracted. No, no, but I mean, I just mean... Oh, for the other smart contracts. Yeah. I just need to tell somebody else, like, this is what you'll be hitting. Here are your parameters. No, you don't need, like, that's automatically gets extracted from your code. Yeah. Can we, uh, can we move on to talk about China a bit? Mm. <laughs> we know that you've got personal connections with China. And we know that you guys are based in San Francisco. Yes. Uh, can you tell us what you're doing here? Um, <laughs> what are you doing here? What am I Coming doing Coming to tomorrow. Yeah. Like, visa, what visa does he have? Why is he here? <laughs> How did you get your visa in season things, China? Yeah, uh, let's discuss that. Um, it was a long line in uh, San Francisco. <laughs> you, would, you would be surprised, but uh, people at 7 a.m. Yeah. already line up in consulate. You just said, I'm in blockchain. And they're like, come in. Come in. <laughs> That's what we like. Yeah, I mean, like my, my main point, uh, and this kind of spans across everything, like if, if I'm not there, I don't really like cannot make any informed decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, to, to kind of be able to reason about our kind of global strategy and, you know, China is definitely a huge part of this, mm -hmm. uh, maybe bigger than pretty much a lot of other places. Um, we need to figure out how, you know, what, what's this... Uh, what this part of the world lives in, right? So this is like my part, my biggest part is learning, like getting yeah. in, what people are doing here, well, so, what they're interested in, what is the motivation. And I mean, long-term, are you looking at Asia in terms of funding or user, user adoption, or is it really just an exploratory visit to? Uh, I mean, main perspective always is developers, developers, yeah. developers, developers, uh, because if there's developers and I'm, I'm, you know, from what I know in Ch about China is developers here are able to get users, right? Users here, can, mm. like end users here are way more interested in trying new things. So if, if developers actually given the right tools can build up new applications that are actually, you know, being able to capture a large, large number of users, right? Then, you know, the whole network benefits. Yep. So that's that's what I'm really interested in is like meeting with developers, um, get, getting to know what are the problems they have, what type of things they want to fix, both blockchain and non-blockchain, right? Like what is a non-blockchain developer? What is their problem? Hmm. Like from perspective of like building a new application or, you know, evolving uh, kind I mean, of that's a one. really interesting space. I'd love to get a sense of what you're hearing because, I mean, obviously there are some structural issues with China. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the, the independent developer is much more an American thing. Yeah, yeah um, that's, and yet that's it, what I've learned. And then <laughs> yeah. yet at the same time, you get teams like Binance that move so much mm. more quickly than anyone in the States. Yeah. It's kind of like the bigger institutions in China are way more flexible than in the States, but... Individually, the developers are much more conservative and reluctant to do things. 
Devin, is that does that pan out with what you're seeing in the on the ground in the hackathons and? Pretty, I mean, yeah, for, for China, I mean, for China, I've been here for what, three days, but yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 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 so what have you learned? Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, like, it seems like uh, there's, yeah, way smaller, like, space of kind of individual developers and uh, especially, like, aspiring entrepreneur type of thing, hmm. even though there is people who are that, but all of them are in big companies. People still aren't used to being paid. Like, it's still hard to get paid by foreigners. Hmm. Like it's super hard to do credit card processing. Um, you know, Bitcoin really had this room for growth and then the block size debate capped it. Mm. Um, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting space as well. I think there is also a sense that you, you know, wildflowers get cut down. So yeah. you, you want to have the protective umbrella of a Tencent or things. You, if you've yeah. got great ideas yeah. as a big developer, you want to go to a place where they've got a chance to survive. But it's, yeah, it's kind of like in the States, you run into people and they go to Google so they've got the credibility to raise funding and do their own thing. Whereas here, <laughs> Who it's could like... that be? <laughs> <laughs> we Is that you, Ilya? Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, you got people like Ilya. We've, like in China, you know, no one's, we did. We had a lovely lunch. Thanks, Google. Google. Um, but uh, yeah, here, you know, people don't want to leave the protective umbrella because hmm. kind of as soon as you do, you're sort of throwing it away. Well, I think, I mean, there are other structural little things like you can't run a web server without a corporate yeah. account, right? Yeah. So you have yeah. to have formed a company. Yeah. Whereas in the US, you can be turning over money before you have to make any kind of commitment to anything. So Right. And by do, everyone will build instead of buy, which mm -hmm. means you've got less opportunity to do things to on the outside anyway. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. If the, the yeah. model is more, it's sort of the... Well, I mean, even but, blockchain. I mean, mm. the blockchain titans, they look around for ideas to copy. There's not a lot mm. of... Well, it's oh, a, look, also a techno-prisoner's really approach. They don't want their own stuff going away, starting yeah. something up and then having to buy it back. So they yeah. just perforce don't do that. What you yeah. see is if anyone does that, it gets copied in-house. So you know pretty mm. clearly that that's not going to be profitable. But don't yeah. you think they all, like inside they also invest in like kind of intern entrepreneur kind of thing mm. where people build things inside? And kind of try to innovate from inside. I mean, WeChat started that way. Yeah, WeChat was a Korean company, actually. Was it? I thought yeah, they it was a Korean company that did the first version. At least, hopefully, that's not wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get a lot of angry yeah. emails later. Well, no, no, <laughs> or, no, no, sorry, no. WeChat. <laughs> no, no. I, like, I, I actually do believe. Well, I'll yeah, have you to don't check get a lot this. Of email so here, <laughs> check yeah. this, so we're not pushing out lies. But I believe, <laughs> uh, I believe WeChat was a Korean Interesting. company to start. I mean, Tencent actually may be the exception to the rule. Mm. Um, and I mean, anyone looking for funding in Asia, uh, I don't know how trustworthy they are. They're sort of like Facebook in that they tend to do a lot of things in-house, but they've just you got a- Tencent? The, yeah, Tencent. Yeah. But they've got a massive amount of money. And I mean, they've got literally hundreds of VCs on the payroll vetting, yep. vetting investment opportunities. Well, it's also, I mean, it's be very interesting to get a, a sense from what's going on in the internals of those companies. Because, I mean, there was a while when Baidu hired every map developer they could simply to keep them away from hmm. other companies. From building any other and So they, they invent, they launched their, at least apocryphally, I don't know how true this is, they yeah. launched their takeout delivery service purely to occupy the map developers that they were mm. keeping away from the other companies. Interesting. I'm pretty sure they're like with 15% of DD being... Uh, let go this last week. I don't think they're um, quite in that mind frame anymore. Yeah. So it'd be interesting <laughs> to find out. But I mean, I, I actually, looking at San Francisco, we first met Ilya through John Gordon, right? Mm. Yep. A uh, friend of ours in blockchain. 
And um, one of the really interesting things for me watching San Francisco in comparison to Asia is how insular and unfocused on competition the big guys are. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, people were talking about Facebook doing a stable coin. Uh, the people we met from, or the people that would talk to us about what Google were doing were mm -hmm. saying, well, they're not really worried about it because, you know, their data needs are far too big mm -hmm. for a blockchain to process. And I mean, I look at a company like Tencent and I think Tencent buys some meaningful IP in the blockchain space. It can trip up American industry for the next 10, 15 years. I mean, the mm. thing about blockchain, at least this is my opinion, uh, is that it will be really hard to innovate on blockchain from a big company. And, you know, like what Facebook is doing is very interesting to see. But like right now, at least where the market, the actual users of blockchain, right, they will not use Facebook blockchain. Like that's the current market. Mm. There's probably a like, technology that kind of powers new generation of things that mm -hmm. may be more acceptable to what Facebook is doing, but it's unclear that that's what, well, that's what's happening. My big yet. question there is why blockchain then? So you say, okay, well, so Facebook, yeah, why not, why not just users, the, so the money? Make, yeah. They, why does just build a money? Well, yeah. I, I, I've got a deeper question, which may be um, one of the big differences we see is Nobody in the United States in the blockchain space seems to be worried about patent and IP. How does this fall out in sharding? I mean, are you guys at all concerned about? No. Yeah, I mean, the, the way I think of IP in general, not, not even in blockchain, is that unless you have something else, like you either, I mean, like I was doing an AI before, right? And there you have a data mode, which, you know, part of the reason why I'm in blockchain is to figure out how to reduce the data modes because big companies actually Similar, have such a, yeah. such a big yeah. data mode right now that you cannot actually build an AI startup anymore. Mm. Um, but yeah, like unless you have some other mode, the IP is not a, like there's always a way to work around IP. Like there's no really, mm. uh, like the, the legal papers that says, hey, you know, you build this, here's a patent. That's, so that's all for defense. Do, do it's you really hard to use it. Do you see people moving on this in the sharding space or is no one caring about it? Is so there's, maybe the question I'm asking. I, I wouldn't say in sharding. There's some people who have patented consensus. As far as I know, Hashgraph consensus is mm -hmm. patented. And that created such a negative backlash on them. Uh, we actually were looking at Hashgraph as like a consensus and I mean, we evaluated and decided against it, but even just mentioning Hashgraph to some people were like, wait, you know, they patented, like, is, how can you build, how that, can you build an open network, which is based on a patent? Is thing? that because of the way they introduced that they had the patent or I mean, cause I'd heard this, so people talk about when they announced it and how badly that went down. And I'm wondering, is it? It doesn't really matter if they actually have a patent. It's just right. the fact that they announced it has already created such a negative backlash, mm. right? Mm. So, like, I mean, the thing is, like, about the IP is that, I mean, there's no way to decide where IP stops, right? Like, is, you know, is any DAG-based consensus now is mm. patented by Hashgraph or just specifically this rules? Because I can change a little bit the rules and this is a different consensus but it's still based on DAG. But then Avalanche is based on DAG. Is Hashgraph covering the Avalanche consensus on their patent? Like, it's just a problematic space. And, uh, like, people will, like, to actually decide on that, they need to go to court. It, it, where it'll be, people who have yeah. no idea about tech will be deciding this, which is I mean, a bad outcome yeah, for everybody. I think it will be very interesting because I think people do pay more attention to it in Asia. Mm -hmm. But in the same way, people in Asia don't feel threatened by it. Mm -hmm. Certainly in China, people aren't worried about USIP. But no. I thought... 
people in China don't care about IP generally. <laughs> they care about their IP, but yeah. uh, I mean, I I can't see China stepping in to enforce US IP. You know, people will need the China patents. Um, it's a weird space. I think uh, I'd be more concerned. I, if I, I was in Silicon Valley, I'd be mm. a lot more concerned about a Tencent Alibaba IP mm. play into the states but, than but, anything else. I mean, yeah. the thing is, like, you, if you if you actually launch an open network, the whole point of this network is to be unstoppable. Like, there's no like IP to inf like there's no single party to pretty much charge for IP violation. That that's that's kind of I mean that's the idea, right? It, it's it's evolving as how we build these networks, etc. But yes, like the reality is, except if you're doing corporate applications on a blockchain, mm -hmm. right? Because then you have the sort of like the MP3 thing where yeah. the big fish get nails. Like think IBM with Hyperledger. Sure, but right um, now corporate adoption is at zero. At zero, yeah, and it's unclear. Like so, I mean, I, I've, I've IBM thinking, are always promoting Hyperledger in my LinkedIn feed. <laughs> <Surely it's, laughs> Well, it's Microsoft, the same as IBM Microsoft Watson. Too. IBM Watson too. has such such a great marketing machine. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard of any like actual practical mm. deployment? I mean, actually, I don't know. Maybe there is. Three months. Three, Three months, months. Ilya. Yeah. But the... like the, the the thing about, and this is actually I mean interesting question for for China as well is like, it's the currently blockchain has such a unclear ROI. On implementing for any mm. big enterprise mm -hmm. that we've seen a lot of people doing POCs with enterprises but nobody actually managed to get a deployment like a POC like proof, a, of proof of concept oh okay yeah, yeah so a lot of people like blockchain is super interesting like we talked we we our, our BD machine Sasha he reached out to, <laughs> to, a, to a ton of uh, to, to a ton of enterprises and he got like amazing response. He worked before mm. at MemSQL and MuleSoft, selling yeah. pretty much database and integration layer. Uh -huh. And you know, this is I mean, blockchain is kind of in the same space. Yeah. And he knows the statistics on responses for this kind of selling this kind of software. And he was 10x of what you get at MuleSoft mm. and MemSQL. So this is, there is huge interest. Mm. But then when you talk with them, there's a clear like misalignment between uh, like they want to learn about it, but they are not going to like actually, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess most people are like very skeptical. They're just hoping maybe there is something to this blockchain thing. Can you educate me about it so that I can see if it solves my problems? But but the, the main issues I think is ROI actually. Like mm. if you think of it, like right now as an enterprise, you have already your existing stack, right? You have all of your applications running. And now somebody coming in and saying, hey, you should rebuild it on the blockchain. It will cost you 100x more to run this infrastructure. But the benefit you get is that other companies now can talk with you. <laughs> and like you, you, talk, you talk with, uh, you know, any like banks and they're like, yeah, we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> you pay more to be competed with. Well, and also so. most people would want something like they'd probably be most excited about a company coming in and saying, well, for X amount, we can actually build a gateway that you have the keys to that companies mm. can talk to because they actually want to gatekeep it anyway. So. It, it, this is interesting. This is part of the you don't need a blockchain approach mostly because it makes you weaker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's so. new, new types of business models and new types of applications which blockchain unlocks mm -hmm. yeah. through this collaboration between companies. I don't think companies are there to accept that because this, you, they need to change how they do business, right? Mapping this back to the U.S. and China, there's something very interesting here because the American developer community is much more likely to pick this up and Chinese institutions are much more likely to pick this up, but not the other way around. Mm. 
because Chinese institutions will tend to be the underdogs in global markets, and American developers are tending to be the ones that will actually well, try right. to undercut the, yeah. the more yeah. established Western institutions. Well, also, as well. I mean, the Chinese, you've got the kind of four, you know, it varies which, who's counted exactly, mm. but you look at them and they're much more broadly spread than. Like Google, for instance, yeah. it has it has its moonshot projects and it has sort of different divisions like Android and cars, etc. But um, it's actually surprisingly monolithic compared to something like the sprawling you know mass that Alibaba covers. Mm. I mean, they do all sorts of of things because they're, they're just so enormous. Mm. Um, and and again, they there's that there's less of a you know Silicon Valley has thousands of these second tier companies you don't have here. Yeah. Um, who are kind of snapping around on, on other business models. And then something like a Google, like we're saying, it has this data mode and it protects itself yeah. by being things like big. Hmm. Um, continues to try to innovate, but it tries to be very big as its main defensive yeah. mechanism. And I can totally see here that the, um, the internal competition in something like Tencent yeah. or Baidu would be much more. <laughs> With this said, uh, why don't we bring the podcast to a close? Mm -hmm. uh, Ilya, is there anything you'd like to share about near protocol that you haven't shared yet i mean people can always visit your website which yeah, is I mean, visit our website uh, check out studio and uh join our discord at near.chat near.chat perfect excellent thank uh, you. yeah thanks for the it's been a really interesting chat mm. thanks a lot mm. yeah it's great content okay take care mm.